Osiris. This podcast is in the loop. The Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. May is Music Month on the Roads Now podcast, and to kick things off, we visit Dina McLeod at the Woody Guthrie Center in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Woody's music and his artwork and the things that he wrote... Those were just his avenues of being a social justice advocate. We definitely, as part of our mission, want to make sure people understand who he was as a person and what his ultimate goal was, uh, to speak up for the disenfranchised, to help people who needed it, and to reach out to everyone to join together and work together for a better tomorrow. This episode kills fascism, the life and legacy of Woody Guthrie with Dina McLeod, premiering May 7th on The Road to Now. There was a big high wall there. I am Brian Brinkman. And I'm Ryan Nichols. You are listening to the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast which, generally speaking, Ryan and myself and tonight Ryan utilize the music of Fish as a means of introducing the listener to other non-jam bands. Because we love Fish, we are Fish fans. The problem with Fish fans, sometimes they get myopic. They listen to too much fish. They're sending surrogates on Fox News to talk about all these crazy, incredible fish shows that they saw and they paid hush money for. And they're just in a world of hurt because they could have listened to other bands. But tonight, we're not doing any of that because this is actually going to be part two of the U2 deep dive, which began last episode. Yeah, we are doing a perfectly legal thing here. We are not using any campaign financing money, we promise. No campaign finance money. We're not structuring it. This is just above board. This is just as clean as it gets. We are talking about the back half of U2's career. In our last episode, we went from Boy through Zeropa and Passengers. Here we are going from 1997's Pop all the way to 2017's Songs of Experience. And we're going to talk about this slightly underrated but kind of lost and really curious period in what was once the biggest band on the planet who at times still feels like the biggest band on the planet i think as you all know we're big u2 fans here Uh, i think that uh, that's why we've dedicated nearly four hours of podcasting to this one band um as you'll see as we go through this we both have or we all have um some critical thoughts some really endearing thoughts and some really, uh, um, I don't know, just a, a really good perspective. Amusing, here on, amusing thoughts on where that where the band is at this point in time, what the struggles are that they've gone through, and um, kind of where we see them uh, here in 2018. So really excited to jump into this with all you guys tonight. Few things to me more interesting about talking about this era of U2 with U2 fans because there's uh, there's a lot of good music. 
and there's a lot of hilarity and a lot of to the point that people tend to not like Bono at this point in their career, kind of like this portion of U2 is kind of an explanation as to why. I'll always fight for the guy. I think that he's is unduly vilified. Which they we deserve will talk a lot about. of empathy in this period. Let's just be honest. Yeah. <laughs> empathy and at the same time they have a very hard time getting out of their own way. Well let's jump in. And on that note, let's get to some U2. U2 has not put out a formal album in four years, and they are debuting on VH1 in mid-February. I was just shy of my 12th birthday. I was flipping channels and came across a TV show that was on that night on VH1 called U2 A to Z. And I remember calling my parents in the room, and we sat down, and for the next three and a half hours, we watched every single U2 video, which was supposed to culminate with the debut of the song Discotech, which was their new single off of their new album. And my parents were slightly appalled. (laughs) (laughs) And this is the lead-up to U2's ninth album, Pop. Probably their most maligned album, For me, this was the album that I remember most vividly coming out at the peak of my YouTube fandom as a kid, and this led to my very first concert that I ever saw in person later that summer in 1997, the YouTube Pop Mart. Um, This is an album where in which the band spent about two and a half years crafting. They booked a tour before they ever actually finished the album, and so they scrambled to finish it and have since remixed pretty much every song on the album and have done as much as they could within their careers we'll talk about here over the next few albums to kind of brush this one under the rug Um, it's a really interesting piece of work from the band it also is an incredibly flawed piece of work from the band and it's one where i would argue the band didn't go nearly as far as they should have um, what are your guys' thoughts on pop? So to me, pop kind of marks the point in U2's career where they made the transition from innovators to imitators. They could still write songs, but now they were chasing trends as opposed to setting them. And I think this album is best viewed via the lens of the late 90s and like the, the Billboard alternative rock charts. This is when you had... Uh, Bands like The Prodigy, Fatboy Slim, Chemical Brothers, Beth Orton, Nine Inch Nails, Garbage, all these bands melding these big dance beats to big rock songs. This was seen as the way forward. DJs, these DJs were the rock stars. And, you know, like you 2 they kind of want in on that. And they sort of set out to try to make an album of big, danceable, electronic pop songs. And yet... They kind of, they didn't go 
went too far, maybe not far enough, because a lot of a lot of pop feels a little half baked. And as I know, Brian, as you mentioned, they booked a tour before they completed the album. And whenever somebody tried to say that pop wasn't that good, they would say, "Oh, we agree. That's because we made the mistake of booking the tour before finishing the album. Don't ever book the tour without finishing the album." Maybe so, and yet. That still doesn't explain utter shite like Miami and the Playboy Mansion. Yeah, well, first and foremost, I'm going to defend the Playboy Mansion, but more on that in a second. (laughs) Um, And Miami, on the album, I view it it as a a document of where you two work. Because they recorded, one thing I'm curious about pop is that they recorded a lot of it in Miami, which is a city I particularly like um, and find amusing on many levels, um, both good and bad. And that song, while on the record, sounds like garbage, yes. It surprisingly became a pretty good live song on the Pop Mart tour. And even had a really good transition into Bullet the Blue Sky, um, which is one of those things that on paper you would be like, what, really? But if you go if you go on YouTube and listen to that, it's, it's pretty terrific. Um, but how I feel about Pop, Pop was... Um, of course, this was before me, but I do I do remember growing up and watching MTV in the late '90s, and I remember all those bands, Dave, that you mentioned, you know, in their videos. Obviously, the Prodigy was Smack My Bitch Up, Nine Inch Nails with the like. Well, I guess the Perfect Drug was coming out about this time, so there was that um, songs like that, and like yeah, those were like huge, like big beat type songs, and like even if it was like a rock band, um, and pop didn't go far enough in that direction. Like they brought in like. You know, Nelly Hooper worked on a couple things with them and, and people like that. But so a song like Mofo, I think, is a huge indicator of the direction they really could have took pop in. Mm-hmm. But instead, this is where they started to strip their sound down a lot. Like, it, if we think about it, songs like If God Will Send His Angels or even Staring at the Sun, which was a pretty a pretty successful single, actually. Um, you know, if you wear that velvet dress, like these are these are already you two kind of stripping down their sound. Like we give Pop a lot of credit for being huge and over the top, and that that's the thing that we remember most about it. You know, a song like Last Night on Earth is is a terrific, like excellent song. Re- I love just, Last Night on Earth. That's yeah. a great song. It's got a huge chorus. It's huge got chorus. big guitars. The chorus, it's catchy. I think the Edge said we didn't play it since 1998 because it wasn't a good song. Otherwise, we would have played it more. Well, he he claimed it. I, I will correct you on that one. He claimed in the YouTube by YouTube book, he claimed that we wouldn't play this because it's not Sunday, Bloody Sunday, or New Year's Day, which I think is a ludicrous statement because <laughs> that song that song is as arguably as big as something as like Until the End of the World and and live it did it ironically transitioned into Until the End of the World and it worked really well too. But why, you know, why leave that in your past? I, I think it's a song that it ca- kind of captured the bigness that Pop was going for, without being like overly silly, like dis- like discotheque. I love the death, but it is a bit of a silly song, you know. Like it might seem dated in some aspects, but Les High Earth and and Gone would be my other selection. I think for songs that like nailed the big sound that they were going, big over the top sound they're going for. With Gone Pop. was great live, great on stage. They remixed it for the greatest hits comp, which I think was necessary for them to do. It was all the, all the remixes on the greatest hits compilation are really good. Um, they they figure out some issues with each one. Like even what the biggest one, "Staring at the Sun," has the drum beat in the beginning of the song, which I think fits really well. Uh, but 
Gone, Gone was the most played song from Pop after Pop. And yeah, it hasn't Pop been Mart, played since 2001, since though. It's crazy. Yeah, which is nuts. Because Gone, I feel like, is one of those songs. And Last Night on Earth, similarly. You could play either of those songs, and I think even casual fans at the end of those would be like, oh, wow, that was pretty cool. <laughs> you know, like. Both are, well, Gone, Gone fit really well in the early parts of the Elevation Tour. I think it was last played towards the end of the first leg of the tour. I don't think that they it played did it make it to Europe. Oh, yeah, okay. it made it to Europe, but it didn't make it to the post the weird post nine eleven elevation tour, which right. we'll talk about, I'm sure, in a minute. Yeah. Um, none of the pop songs made it there except I think Staring at the Sun and then Please, of course. But yeah. um, Gone and Discotech had pretty good setlist representation setlist representation on the first part of the elevation tour, which Discotech I think actually did not come into its own on stage until the elevation tour. Ironically, it I think it sounded a lot better there than it did on Pop Mart. Um, so my my big thought about this record and and at the time when it came out i loved this album i could not stop listening to this record yeah um and there are parts of it i listened to this a lot in the last week or so um and i think it's cool that we're starting this episode with pop i think dave made a really good point at the start that this is kind of where they make this weird transition from innovators to imitators and We'll talk a lot about this. I think that there still are aspects of their career that they're that they do lead the pack, even if people begrudgingly compliment them on it. Uh, the larger music industry, but they do kind of lead the direction in in, in some ways. Um, but you know, this is really the record where they went so far in one direction that they the only option they had was to strip things down from all that you can't leave behind. And I feel, in a sense, like. I personally think they should have gone that much further on this record. I don't agree that this is where all that you can't leave behind should have fallen in their discography. I've heard that from certain critics that like this just is an inessential album. I honestly think that pop would have been better served as a fully bloated mid nineties, double LP (laughs) double album with the first disc being all songs like disco tech. Do you feel loved? And mofo. And the second disc being your uh, Staring at the Sun, Gone, Last Night on Earth, Please, these like broken down U2 songs that look towards their past, you know. Staring at the Sun, to me, that's what Oasis would have sounded like if like Liam Gallagher wrote all the songs as opposed to Noel. Make of that what you will. With the lyrics, the melody totally, but yes, yeah, yeah with the lyrics. Much lyrics. I guess, <laughs> I guess my, my point is like, I think, I think it was Bono who said that the first half of pop is the party, and the back half of pop is the hangover, and I kind of feel like the party just ends after Mofo. Yeah, because if God will send His angels, this would not a party song. That's a good like. It's it's like um, trying to throw your arms around the world and stay on their previous two records where it's mm-hmm. kind of like the, the morning after song yeah, in a way, yeah. but it's, it, it would never be the album closer. Like it, it fits good in the middle of the record, but um, to follow with staring at the sun is a bit of a interesting like sequencing. Like it works of course, because staring at the sun isn't, you know, we're so used to it nowadays in modern day being this acoustically stripped down song, but it, right. on the record, it, you know, it has a, it has a good propulsive beat. It's a bit catchy. You know, it's a good single. So, and that got that. And, um, 
I think it was Last Night on Earth. Both got some good airplay on VH1 and MTV during the during the. Last Night on Earth. That's on Last Night Earth. No, Dave, I no. remember Last Night on Earth because they they did a video. It it's it was shot in Kansas City. Um, okay. which is it I them driving around control. in a car? It's them driving around in a car. Yeah, okay. it's, it's, it's an interesting <laughs> little video. But staring at the sun. Yeah. There were multiple videos for that one, but I remember one of them doing pretty well. And Discotech surprisingly charted pretty well. It was a top 10 hit in the U.S., for example. So I mean, pop just, hit number one in 35 countries. This was kind of – this was yeah. like it, – this is such an interesting record because it's the last record that you 2 put out that can be categorized as – I mean, everyone was anticipating – all that you can't leave behind and that was a massive massive hit for so many reasons um but pop was kind of the last time where collectively like the alternative music world as well as the popular music world was looking forward to a u2 record and i think because they rushed it um which i don't want to give away something we're going to talk about here at the end but (laughs) It's kind of one of the things I like about the album is that it was rushed. It sounds half-baked in some cases, but it also it's U2. Like, how do they do a half-baked record, especially when they haven't put something out in four years? Um, I often compare this album to an album from another 80s icon who once said techno equals death and then went full-on techno one year after pop came out. I'm talking about Madonna's Ray of Light and... I think song for song, if we're going to compare this to pop, I think like Madonna eats U2's fucking lunch. <laughs> <laughs> I love both records very dearly, so that's a great comparison. Ray of Light may be the best song off U2's pop. It's not actually off U2's pop. It would have made so much sense as a, as a U2 song. Yeah, now, that, now that I think about it, yeah, that totally is a U2 song. Well, I, w- I want to I want us to talk a little bit about um, Mofo, but but I do want to give a nod to uh, I never paid attention to this song when the album came out, and it's recently become one of my favorite songs from this era of U two and from the latter half of their their career. Um, if you wear that velvet dress, I think it's so subtle and nuanced, and is just such a great representation of that era. And of them kind of transitioning into this stripped down, very like, just these are our instruments, this is our songwriting approach. I I, I really have been enjoying that song as of late. That song really it really bothers me. That that's one that especially bothers me that I don't play live or haven't accepted live because it would totally fit right up. It would have made so much sense in the Elevation tour. It would have made so much sense even on the Vertigo tour in the middle of the set. I mean, they, it was in mind for the Innocence and Experience tour at the East stage, and they never even attempted it. And I was just going to say that song thematically, I feel like, would be such a great fit for what they are doing on the Innocence and Experience tour. Um, yeah. Because so much of this album is about gluttony. Um, for me, the slide guitar is a kind of a um, precursor to the kite. The song that everybody everybody and everybody loves off all you mm. can't leave behind that we'll yeah, talk about yeah, yeah. um and originally on the elevation tour they actually rehearsed those two songs together as a medley and i think that would have been an interesting idea that they never took on um but the the ending of playboy mansion is like okay the beginning part is kind of like okay whatever where's the song gonna actually pick up the ending is really really good and i think that's one that i've kind of been surprised like that song has always been like really maligned in the fan base and 
I get it, but I think the ending of that song really redeems almost the whole thing. So that's just me. But um, one I do want to mention, of course, that we haven't mentioned yet, because this song is, is again, this is kind of like you 2 tried to do a lot on this album. But one thing they definitely tried to do was be themselves at their most political. And please, I would actually argue is their best, single best. If, if you think of all the songs they've written about politics, <laughs> which is a lot, I would say Please is actually the best one and the most like on-the-nose one, which I don't know if you guys would agree with that at all. But I, I think that one, they, they wrote so many songs about, you know, the issues in Ireland and, you know, their own country. And, and it's like they, they take on issues around the world and everything like that. But honestly, they, when they write about their own country and the issues they know best, it works really well and i think please does such a good job with that and the lyrics of please are like sometimes it, it's it pleases one of the songs when i when i hear a bad later day you song i'm just like this is the same band that wrote please you know it's like some people are thinking where to shoot in their name or whatever but please is definitely like might be the gold standard for bono lyrics for me i um, i think i would agree i mean you're, you're making a strong case for it. i i think that the the thing that's so challenging about you two and we talked about this a lot with rattle and hum and this is the weird period that they were in with pop was they they were at this tail end of irony pile piled on irony and please is so sincere and so earnest but it's exactly. also you know just the, the simple title of the song you know there's there's um there's there's just a, a desperation in Bono's voice and Bono's lyrics. And I think the music works really well as kind of this middle ground between what they were going for on pop. And I, I remember my dad saying at the time that it sounded like uh, a, a grown-up Sunday Bloody Sunday. You know, they're yes. no longer the yelling. He's just kind of got his head down, head in his hands, just begging the world to somehow figure out its problems. And I, I yeah, I would agree with that. And, and and the fun thing is that those songs are so linked, like on Pop Mart, like like the drum beat is so similar, and Larry yeah. would often just break into the Sunday Boys on the drum beat because they're so similar. And and one thing I want to note too, and we you know we've casually mentioned Pop Mart and Brian, you saw it, and I believe Dave you did too. But Please was not. the first. Mo- oh, you didn't? Okay, no. all right. Please is the first moment in the entire Pop Mart show where it is just like them breaking the wall down and like just being pure like because they open with the onslaught of like songs from pop you know big you know last night earth gone etc um then they had the segment where they played like a bunch of big hits they played pride they played i still have we're looking for new year's day all in a row and then they did this like kind of half serious karaoke thing with edge um that yeah. is actually pretty, pretty, there's some really great ones that, yeah daydream believer on youtube with david jones is pretty incredibly hilarious um and then they would play miami which during the first half of the tour they would play miami which we've talked about yes it's a bit ridiculous but seriously people watch it on youtube live it was it was actually pretty awesome then they did bullet which is heavy and intense but when they get to please that's when everything is just like Okay, that's YouTube playing on stage. None of the crazy costume stuff. Like, right. this is YouTube, you know. Whereas on ZooTV, you got that. I would say Where the Streets of No Name is the first time you you see that. So it's about a similar point in the show. Um, it's just YouTube out there playing a song. So are we going to play something off pop? I think at this point we've thought more about the record than Bond on the Edge have <laughs> since then. Yeah, but, until but before we play time. it, 
Um, I have to say, and I, I will hold myself to this, uh, the song we're going to play is the third song on the record, Mofo. I think yes. it's the best example of U2 going for the style that they were trying to on this album. And I would argue sober that this is a top three U2 song. It is mm. way up there. Um, the reason being, for those that, for those listening that aren't fully aware, this song is about Bonner's mother. Yes. And it is this massive late 90s big beat song, essentially. And it is it is the most... Bonner used to call it one of the most punk rock, but also not punk rock things ever, because they would open every Pop Mart show with this song, and it's it's a massive, energetic song. But it's still just this guy singing about his his mom like who died yeah. when he was a kid so yeah. it's it's a pretty genius song on every level and i i wouldn't say top three but for me it's way up there definitely um i think it's one of their biggest biggest achievements and and i'd for a period on the vertigo tour i know bono really wanted to play it again that never actually happened but hey they didn't play someday. any joshua tree songs last night in tulsa and the tour opener there is a ample opportunity for old songs to come back if you guys are listening yes. Bono, Edge, Larry, Adam, we know that you're probably listening. Let's get Mofo going on this tour.
2000, and U2 spends most of the run-up to their next album talking about how much pop wasn't great because they wrote the, they booked the tour before they finished the album. This is the part in their career where they could always guarantee a sit-down with David Frick and kind of like throw shade at the album that came out before the album that they happened to be like promoting at the time. So they kept saying, Ugh, we booked the tour before the album was finished. Don't ever do that. But this one, this album, this is a return to our roots. This is Grand U2. This is when Bono, he would say in the press, we were going to give you a classic U2 album. He was making no bones about the fact that they were once again reaching for that brass, reaching for the golden ring. And the result was 2000's All That You Can't Leave Behind, which is a very brazen attempt for you two to get back to the Joshua Tree golden years. This is getting back to the roots, making a capital U2 album. And I think for at least about half of the record, they actually kind of pull it off. And that, to me, this album, it sounds like it came out in 2000. It doesn't sound like a complete throwback. But in terms of chiming edge guitars and anthemic choruses and Bono being the Sal for all wounds, thinking that love is the answer to everything. This is uh, this is that kind of U2 record. The first single was Beautiful Day, and the chorus basically said, it's a beautiful day, don't let it get away. They filmed it at Heathrow Airport in London. There's a big jet airplane going over their heads, and yet it was kind of so triumphant, you just said, fuck yeah. What you don't have, you don't need it now. And they actually, they maintain this level of enthusiasm for about half the record. I would say that the last third is, um, it's almost like Wiley Coyote. He's running towards the cliff. He goes off the cliff and then you see, you know, the <laughs> thump. <laughs> and boy, oh boy, does this album end with a thump. I think it's, relatively flawless up through the song in a little while so tracks one through six it's just hit after hit after hit after hit and their set lists since this album have kind of reflected that but um i know brian feels differently i feel after song six there's you don't need to listen to anything off this record anymore before you so, get in brian i do want to fact check for a moment Right. Beautiful Day's video is actually and the album's cover we're taking at Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris. Oh God, you're right. Oh man. Yes. I'm, yeah, sorry. I'm, that's airline, why, airline, that's airline why we need cover. Yeah, you are the airline guy. We need you. <laughs> your fucking twenty three year old brain is beating my thirty eight year old brain. I'm sorry, that's you're right. Okay. okay. I think in hindsight I have the most complicated relationship with this record of any U two album. Um I was so excited about this album when it was released because um, this was now, what, four years, three years after Pop came out, three and a half, four years afterwards. Um, I'd really changed as a listener. I mean, I was now in my, I was now in high school when this album came out and I was so familiar with the Joshua Tree and I was not super into the kind of music that they were trying to go for on Pop and I was still really weirded out by Zuropa, and I was just really excited for this idea that U2 in their later stages could kind of reclaim where they were at this golden period in their career 
when I was two and three years old and only kind of, you know, remembered through pictures and videos and, and, and music videos and whatnot. So I loved this record when it came out. I saw the Elevation Tour. And I would argue, I think Wild Honey and When I Look at the World are two excellent U2 songs in their latter day uh, era. I don't like Beautiful Day and I never have. Uh, and You're I really, insane. I really, I really don't like Elevation. Uh, I think Walk On, Kite, In a Little While, and Wild Honey, though, are like one of the strongest stretches of record that the band has, has put down. And one of the strongest stretches, without question, in their last 20 years. Um, I just think that those are all four fantastic songs back to back. And I think they're the peak of where U2 is at that point in time. This is one I really remember, even as a kid. I remember Beautiful Day and Walk On being on MTV and VH1 constantly. Saw the Elevation Tour. We're finally at a tour where all three of us have seen it. Seen it. Yes. That was my first show. We've okay, arrived cool. at the present. We have arrived at the present. Um, for me, yeah, I, I like Beautiful Day. I think, I think ironically, I, I've always liked the studio version more than the live version because, I don't know, it's a bit more, it has a bit more of the atmosphere to it that I like, especially the intro. Um a lot of sentimental value hearing that, but live it's never clicked as well for me. I yeah, guess. Yeah, I, I don't. I saw translated live. Hey, Bar Mitzvah band well. play that song once, and it was still awesome. Yeah, no, <laughs> I mean it, it works as a live song, but I, I, I think it's too much of a. This is a dumb thing to say, but I think it's too much of a rock song live. Whereas I think on the, the studio version, it it has this like really nice atmosphere to it. But yeah. I, I, I'm weirdly picky choosy without this album. Like I don't like stuck in a moment. And I don't like elevation that much, but I do like. Like, When I Look at the World, I don't think it's a great song, but I, I have a good... I like the way that song is produced, I think, and that's why I really kind of stick with that one. Um, the undisputable best song on this record, I would say, is definitely Kite, a song that yeah. we've mentioned yes. multiple yes, yes. times in this podcast running up to this because we know this is definitely one of their best later period songs. Um, Kite is a really, really powerful song, um, which at the time it was written, it was actually not written about Bono's dad, but as the Elevation tour went on and Bono's dad passed, that's what it stuck with. And I think that's always like a really powerful thing. Like he obviously has a bunch of songs about his mom, but you know, Kite being kind of the first one about his dad passing away is, is pretty strong. And um, jumping ahead, again, recommending you guys check things out on YouTube. Kite closing shows on the vertigo tour one of the best things they ever performed um it's even on spotify actually on the on the window in the sky single um, right that's that, the b-side yeah. for that right yeah it's, it's the b-side for that and it's, it's a sydney, really right? amazing performance yeah sydney um because they only did it in australia and new zealand as like a um they had a didgeridoo player with them which actually also worked really well Interesting. um but yeah it, it i mean it worked on the elevation tour but i don't think it really found its power until those um, Vertigo tour performances but um, one thing I want to mention before throwing it back to you guys is that ironically the best song from this era is not on this record which is going to be kind of a theme going forward because you 2 kind of had some good in between songs but the ground beneath your feet from the soundtrack of um, what was the name of the movie actually when Winter's directed they bought a Vertigo oh Million Dollar Hotel yes, yeah. yes. Million Dollar Hotel which ironically I've never seen but Ground Beneath Your Feet is a really, really good song um, that at least someone Rushdie co-wrote. Um, but the, the ending climax is really, really great. And if, like, YouTube never... They played that song live, but they played it acoustically. 
but they ever dared attempt the full band version with the ending like that would be one of the cooler things i could do i'd say but anyway one thing to note this album i think when it came out a little um i think joey ramon died i want to say in may of 2001 around there may or june of 2001 remember it happened right after right before i graduated college and the sixth song on this album in a little while just kind of uh final doing like a little like blue-eyed soul i guess that was reportedly one of joy ramon's favorite u2 songs he kind of listened to it a lot in the hospital on his deathbed that song kind of i guess they said almost like carried him over to like the other side so that was sort of some uh some unintentional like gravitas i i have some like probably unjustified vitriol towards that song because they played it a lot on the 360 tour which right. listeners of this podcast will note that that was a stadium tour. Um, that song is, that's a fine song. It's a good song. I, it's, it's a good song. I should stop, you know, again, hating on it, but it did not work at all in the stadium format and was just like the weirdest possible place to like bring that out. But it, it was a good song. Yeah. It, it, I, I'd say it was probably one of Bono's better attempts at doing this, this whole thing, but well, that's the, your sentiment there, I, I would agree with, and, and that'll be something we'll get into when we get to No Line on the Horizon, that yes. if there's any U2 album that should not have had a stadium tour and did not benefit in any way from a stadium tour, it's No Line on the Horizon. Yeah, <laughs> and, ironically, All You Can't Leave Behind probably could have been a stadium tour, but right. instead they kept it Renos, um, which is a smart move, kind of. I think this album is really fascinating, and, and I, I mean, I... I said at the top here, I have a lot of issues with it. I, I think it's um, it's such a cautionary tale. And, and there aren't a lot of bands around anymore that can do what you 2 had the ability to do with this record. Where you essentially say, alright, pause on our evolution. We've done all these different things. We are a completely different band now than we were 20 years, bef- 20 years prior when our first album came out. We are going to essentially present to you a updated version of who we were at our best. And that requires so many different steps in a career to ever even make a record like All That You Can't Leave Behind and to go on a tour like the Elevation Tour, where you're essentially like inviting nostalgia for something that you were really successful at and then being successful at that. Right. Yes. In a sense, this album has it's a shadow over the last near now nearly 20 years of their entire career like they've almost they've not been able to break out of what this album did for them in the spring summer and fall of 2001 when they for the really the last time kind of held the country and pop music in their hands i mean right this album this album also and sorry just to like uh, to add an addendum um, had 9-11 not happened it would be really interesting to see what impact this record had on the greater cultural zeitgeist of the early 2000s because this record songs like In a Little While songs like Kite, songs like Walk On Beautiful Day New York for fuck's sake I mean these mm. songs were 
like not a good song in and of itself yeah no but i mean like what a perfect song for them to write for what 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 happened yeah and and they were the them and springsteen were the bands that everybody looked to in the fall and winter of 2001 2002 Uh, one thing i do want to mention like they really cemented that by doing the super bowl halftime by playing you know beautiful day and then yeah MLK and then transitioning into where the streets of no name with right. all the names survive. I mean, they really, when they did that, and I have strong memories of that too, um, as a kid, like that was like them saying, okay, we're the band for this kind of thing, which was just like. Right. And wasn't on the later, um, on the post 9 11 leg of the Elevation Tour, at the end, wasn't there a screen that read all the names, the 9 11 victims? Yeah, if I, I recall. I, I believe so. Yeah. See, yeah. the Elevation Tour is interesting because the the first two legs of it, the the first U.S. and the and the European leg, like, are really interesting because, like Brian was saying, like they did a lot of unique, like nostalgic type things. Like they brought back Bad Every Night and Wind the Streets, or they would play a couple of songs from Pop, but they would they would have them update like Discotheque and Gone, and they would be like fitting for the Elevation Tour. They did this cool new version of The Fly that sounded awesome. Um, yeah, there were some neat things, but then after. 9-11 happened, and yes, I know it had some poignancy because it was, like, the biggest tour that started after 9-11 or whatever. Like, they just kind of went in this very by-the-books, like, oh, we're going to be right. the band that, like, is the go-to for tragedies. And it, it kind of, it's this weird shift. And, like, if you if you download literally any any show from that third, like, elevation, like, the mood is just so different. And, <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know, it's, it's, it's a weird thing. But they did... Like I mentioned before, they did a really cool version of Police that acoustically that everybody should listen to. Mm. Um, but only uh, thing um, left for me to say about this album is that it's still, if you take it as a copy, in a sense of the Joshua Tree, whenever you copy something, there's ultimately going to be some glitches, and those glitches come in the form of Peace on Earth, New York, and Grace, which God. kind of continues the. Um, you know, the air of you two, what the fuck, guys? Peace <laughs> on Earth is a shitty version of Please. Um, yeah. A really shitty version of Please. Uh, New York is just bad songwriting at every just level. Bad. It's just bad. That's an there, there's, a reason, there's a reason that they have... Okay, I will note, as much as we can hate on Miami, every time you two play in Miami, Bono will at least reference that song. Whereas when I play New York, you have not heard... Any mention of that shit ass song since this, yeah. since the end of Elevation Tour, like they realized very quickly that was not a good song. It's a just... song about New York that no native New Yorker would ever sing or like. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like Angel of Harlem did that job, and right, yeah, right, but, right. And and I'm just gonna go on record and say that Grace is in my bottom five worst YouTube songs. It it is a terrible end to this record. Like if if this record, my, bottom, only... my absolute least favorite YouTube song is on. The next album. So to keep okay. the listeners in, in suspense, we will get there. And mine's yeah, on but... the next after that. Yes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Which is awesome. But great Grace is a really like not good song. I wouldn't say it's my least favorite song, but it's just like it is like the it's... most apathetic ending. And like if the Grand Beneath Her Feet had ended this record, I would feel a lot stronger about it. But I will also say that this while I have some positive things to say about it. It is actually my least favorite YouTube album. Just some pure ratio of songs I like and songs I don't like. So, oh, okay. you can't leave behind? Yes, it is my least favorite YouTube album. Hmm. I don't think it's terrible. It is just extremely middle of the road. But I find it interesting. I could definitely talk about it, of course. But 
I think I, I would skip a lot of this album if I listened to it in full. I don't, I don't know. I, I it's definitely down there for me. Um, I, and I think so much of it is just in hindsight, the, the, the way the album has kind of simmered with me and, and we'll talk about it. I, I think there are a couple albums that are to come that are much more interesting in hindsight and showcase a band that's trying to grow again. Whereas this, yes. like, I don't know. It's, it's just, too it, looking back for me. Yeah. Like, I, I, I feel like this one, this is the one where they least push their sound in any sort of interesting direction. And my, my weirdest thing about this record is that Brian, you know, like I love Daniel Lamont, don't get me wrong, but this is totally album, an album that he would produce. Like, you know, yeah. like, especially for like someone like, I don't know. So let's keep it positive on Beyond the Pond. Listen to the one song that we all love off this record. Absolutely love love Kites. (laughs) And I think think any YouTube fan will tell you they also love Kites. So yes. This song is epic. Let's listen to it right now. Something is about to give. I can feel it coming. I think I know what it is I'm not afraid to die I'm not afraid to live And when I'm flat on my back I hope to feel like I did And hardness It sets in You need some protection The thin album of all time and you have the question of well maybe not of all time but of your career and the question is how do you top that now you've revived your career and you wonder how are you going to continue from this which is not a thing that most bands get to really experience you know lots of bands will go out there and make the exact same album that they did for their first for their career revival which happens a lot and i say in like the indie rock world maybe Maybe some classic rock bands have done it. But U2 is a particularly curious case because, of course, they've remained relevant this whole time. They've played the Super Bowl. They've won Grammys. They've cemented themselves again as the biggest band in the world. They've sold out an entire tour of North America and Europe. So what do they do in this time? Well, they released an amazing song called Electrical Storm on a best of album that collected the best of their work in the 90s. 
Um, they released a not so good song called The Hands That Build America from a not so good Martin Scorsese movie called Gangs of New York. Um, and then they, they kind of, you know, bought houses in the south of France, messed around, and then just said, Hey, Steve Lily White, let's make it album again because it's been so damn long since we've done this. And somehow, once again, you two have risen from the ashes and made another massive, massive record called How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb, which is a bit of a conundrum because they didn't actually go that political with this record. Um, they did kind of go for like a peace message and Bono got a little hippie-ish and co-opted the coexisting for a little while. Uh, but overall, the song Love and Peace or Else. Love, love and Peace or Else, yes. Uh, which I have quite a bit to say about that song. But they did a good job of making a solid U2 album here. I, I, I have a lot less complaints about this record than I do All You Can't Leave Behind. Um, I do say that most people are going to remember this period of U2 as the Vertigo iPod commercial, which, yes, mm. you have to mention because... This is when I had my first iPod, and a lot of other people did too. It was the U2 iPod. Um, and yes, they used Vertigo incessantly. And it was all over MTV with that crazy video they shot in the desert with the big rotating atomic bomb targets. You, um, bought, you, you, you got the U2 iPod, the red and black iPod? I did get the red and black iPod. I, did, I not only got that once, I got that twice. I got the regular version, and then when it came out with the either photo or video version, I, I got that too. Um, so that, that come with all the U2 albums already loaded onto it? You had to buy it. It came with a $50 discount, which wasn't too bad, oh, I guess, oh. at the time. Okay. But now it's totally worth it because everybody could pirate. Um, so, <laughs> or you had them all on CD, and then you could just load them onto your computer. But it did have a lot of neat like B-sides and uh, live tracks and stuff like that. So that, that was cool. Um, but some of the singles were pretty big from this era. Um, Vertigo, like we said, was unmissable. Sometimes you can't make it on your own. Um, the first song that was properly ever written about Bono's dad, um, that, got, that that video got pretty decent airplay. Yeah. Um, and, of course, City of Blinding Lights, which kind of became late period U2's Where the Streets Have No Name, which is yeah. something that it kind of cemented uh, pretty recently, in fact. So, and open up an Obama guys. anthem. Was it like... was an Obama anthem. Yeah, Obama really is the one that kind of made that song such a huge thing, too. So. And original of the species was on the radio. I don't know if that got a video, but I definitely heard it, that on the radio. It got. I can't actually. I think it might have got a video because it appeared. It was in iPod ads, ironically too. It wasn't for the YouTube iPod though. I don't think. But I remember it being in iPod ads too, because there's this, this shot of Bono singing it during the Live in Chicago DVD. Yeah. That made it as like the picture that they kept using. So. Yeah, Original Species was a sort of single, too. So this was another really successful album for you, too. And I think they did a much better job of sequencing and choosing singles and, I don't know, feeling themselves out a bit. So, yeah, I, I enjoy this record and think it's aged a lot better than All That You Can't Leave Behind. Um, I kind of, in my mind think of this album as well as the vertigo tour as the cousins of all that you can't leave behind and of elevation i think that just the the move that they made in the late 90s early 2000s really kind of lingered over them and resulted in another more straight ahead album that's got some really great straight ahead songs some 
clunkers as well. Um, looking at you, a man and a woman, and uh, uh, Yahweh. Um, but I, I think you know Vertigo is a excellent opener. Really great rock song that uh, also does a great job of showing off those uh, really melodic, trilling guitar lines from the Edge. Miracle Drug is one of my favorite songs and one of the U2 songs that can just make a grown man cry on command. Um, City of Line and Lights is fantastic. Um, Original Species, I, I think, is one of their great later songs. I, I, I really like this album overall. I think this is one of their stronger records. For me, the bad songs in this one are so bad. <laughs> but it's front-loaded. Like, uh, U2 albums generally tend to be front-loaded. I agree that Vertigo, that's a hell of a single. That's just like a great rock and roll song with a big, fat Adam Clayton bass line and a huge chorus. Not for nothing, they played it oh, like twice almost every night. Yes. <laughs> because they thought it was Very such a good song. Yes. That's, yes. Like Yola Tango on the Fade Tour playing the song Ohm twice every night. Um, kind of similar. Um, I, I do recall in the run-up to this album and uh, the in- inevitable Bono gives pull quotes to Rolling Stone interview. I think he said that the edge has reinvented the guitar and the song Lover, Peace, or Else sounds like punk rock on Mars, which... I don't think it sounds like punk rock on Mars. I think it sounds like a really good approximation of kind of a funky Led Zeppelin song, which is still good in of itself. The Certainly the first five songs on this record being Vertigo, Miracle Drug, Sometimes You Can't Make It On Your Own, Love and Peace, and City of Blinding Lights. That's a pretty flawless album side. But you get into um, Side B, Slightly More Muddy Waters, a Man and a Woman is uh, some really terrible sting, lover man pastiche. The last song on this album, Yahweh, that's my least favorite U2 song of all time because it's just bargain basement edge droning with Bono going Yahweh on the chorus. But uh, the big kicker on side B, though, is um, what we have to call... The era, it's probably the peak so bad it flips itself into actually being good, being the song Crumbs from Your Table, which is uh, it's about one of Bono's favorite things to sing about, which is third world hunger. And just the lyrics and the bridge, it's so on the nose. It goes all the way up your nose and comes out the other side. And I like it, but... Only you two could pull off a song like this. See, Love and Peace is like that, but too, because that song is so outrageously cliched on nose lyrically. Oh my god! But man. it works in the most hilarious way. But like, it because musically it's so good. That's the thing. Like they did a really good job with Love and Peace, like musically, but lyrically it's like, like he even sings "Where's the Love." Almost kind of like the Black Eyed Peas song. Like that's how that's how on the, that's how mid two thousands on the nose that song is. But it's a great song, so I can't I can't knock it at all. Um, once again, I come to the rescue of a maligned YouTube song, and that is "Man and the Woman." And I'm glad, Dave, that that's not your all time least favorite YouTube song, and that Yahweh is because that's my second least favorite. Because um, <laughs> I really hate Yahweh. Um, a man and a woman, I actually think 
again, it's good. And I think it, I think without a man and a woman, you wouldn't have a song like Summer of Love um, from Song of Experience, which, of course, we'll talk about much later mm. on. It's a very low key. Like, I like Bono doing like the lower register, like stripped down. It, it's kind of in the same realm of um, if you wear that velvet dress, too. Like, I kind of see those three songs as kind of like a a continuation of each other. Where the velvet dress is sensual. Whereas yes. if a man and a woman is like Spanish guitar, Gypsy King at your all-inclusive sandals resort poolside, while you're like thinking about your like tantric sting sex, I don't know. It's... That's no, that's fair. That's fair. I will say that the fan base, it, it's like babyface in the fact that the fan base at large has come around a lot on that song over the years and has it's aged better. But I, I still get the people that like, I understand if you don't like that song, like I get it. There are, really, um, there are a few U2 songs that really feature the acoustic guitar. Like that song does. It's, yes. It's a really interesting song in that sense that like just the, the, the choices that they made production wise, there's not a lot of U2 songs that sound a lot like that. No. And, and, and the electric, parts in the chorus are pretty i like mm-hmm. the inter, intertwine of those two they work really well um a song i do want to mention that is also not often mentioned in this record and i'm glad that neither of you like hated on it because it's 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 kind of there but it's it's, it's a kind of a underrepresented song is one step closer which ironically is the only song from this mm-hmm. record that has never been performed live um which most people would say is because it's forgettable, but I think it's there's a bit of a deeper meaning to that song. I think it, I think it would work well out of it was rehearsed for the Innocence and Experience tour to come out of Bullet of the Blue Sky, and I think it actually kind of work would work well in that spot. I but, had forgotten about it until just now, but now I'm thinking, oh yeah, that's a pretty good song. So, yeah, it's not a bad song at all. It's and one it's step closer to knowing. I'll, yes. I'll, I'll <laughs> talk about this when we get into the next album, um, which um, I've really come around on. Um, I think One Step Closer is the first kind of uh, thematic push towards No Line on the Horizon. Yes. And it, to me, feels like, and this is really something that U2 hasn't done. I guess, you know, uh, No No Line on the Horizon is the closest to this, but One Step Closer sounds like it could have come off of The Unforgettable Fire. And it feels like something of that era. and it's it's interesting. Brian Eno is not listed as a producer on that song at all. But it feels like him. Yeah, it's it's kind of, and I keep linking a lot of songs in our career thematically. But it, it feels like Stranger in a Strange Land, or it feels like Promenade, or like Elvis Presley in America, or something like that. Like it, it's it's in that realm of like you can see just or The Wanderer, of course. Um, you can see it's it's a song that's looking for answers still. And right. It is one step closer, so maybe maybe one day Bono will will find the answers. <laughs> you know? and what I do want to mention, and I totally forgot, this was a single, and you two have reminded us of this song uh, as soon as last night. But all all because of you might be the best who rip off any band has ever attempted. Oh yeah, that's that's, that's a, that is quite a who rip off. That was a single too, right? It was a single. It was a pretty pop. It was a decent. Right, the video was footage of. Um... The New York concert under the Manhattan Bridge that I waited in line for for like three hours and got sick of and went home. Yeah, and they drove Which around I New York. Probably like shouldn't have done. Yeah. Um, one of my that song is not bad at all, I have to no, say. I think, no, it's, I think it's a and pretty, last night and the tour opener, it sounded great. It did. It sounded really good last night. On the Vertigo tour, it was okay. But last night, I think it really kind of came into its own a bit better. Because um, lyrically, again, 
that's one of those songs that like on the surface it's like okay yeah we can say vertigo is a, yeah it is a great single don't get me wrong but it's just a dumb fun rock song about going to a club whereas like all you can't leave behind their i don't know if that's about bono's mom or if it's about like his wife or it's like it's a neat kind of i don't know there's a couple of ways that song could go lyrically and that's good for a rock song to do which you don't often get so i'd, I'd say yeah it, it's a nice compared to what we're gonna have to really hit on on the next record in terms of rock songs um <laughs> All you, all because of you is is it's nice having a rock song that really has like a a nicer, deeper side to it. So, I think I think this album is interesting in the sense that um, it kind of intentionally feels like a mosaic. It's and I think Bono talked about this in the lead up to No Line on the Horizon that um, part of the problem with How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb. Um, is the fact that it's just a lot of songs without a ton of thematic principle behind it where we're coming off of an era where you 2 really went after a big theme. And I actually really like that aspect of this album. You know, you get these yes. rock songs, you get these mid-tempo songs, you get your protest songs, you get your big anthemic uh, uh, concert openers, you get a few more rock songs. I mean, it just it feels... And I think we'll talk about this a bit when we get into their last two records. It feels almost like um, uh, what they uh, are trying to do right now with innocence and experience, uh, much more unintentional. It's just that, like you could put this album on. I feel like if if it, if you wanted to introduce someone to you two, there's there's way better albums to to utilize. But if you wanted to give someone just an example of what you two sounds like in uh, 50 minutes you could give them how to dismantle atomic bomb and they could come away knowing exactly what the band sounds like. It covers it pretty well. And a neat thing that must be discussed is the vertigos were, um, which I know we haven't been discussing the tours as much until like the last two albums, but <laughs> I, I feel, you know, they are as crucial as the records and, you know, being a fish podcast, you know, live music is no stranger to this, but the vertigo tour also felt like that. Like that was where they really felt like they were piecing together different shows all in one, you know, they would open yeah. with the sweet of city of blinding lights, vertigo elevation as this kind of like, okay, big rock opening. Then they would do some songs from boy. They would do I'm electric. Yeah, Uncut Dub, right. The Ocean, Gloria. I mean, they would do that. Then they would do, like, a more, like, kind of serious, but, you know, kind of sentimental thing with Beautiful Day, uh, New Year's Day, Miracle Drug, and sometimes you can't make it on your own. Then they would do the political portion. Then they would do another political portion. <laughs> um, you know, they would do the protest portion. Okay, and then they would do the uh, Bono Loves Africa portion. So two very different political things. Then they would do a Zoo TV portion, which was crazy um, and great. And then they would usually end the show with this weird encore of All You Kill, or All Because of You. I keep wanting to say it. Um, all Because of You, Yahweh, and 40, which I think was the weirdest ending to any YouTube show. <laughs> because, because, because Yahweh sucks. We've said this. And 40, listen, 40 is amazing as a show closer. But the version they played on the Vertigo Tour was the longest, most drawn-out show ending I've ever seen any band do. Like, they just kept playing it. And it's just like, 
play it for three minutes, let the crowd sing, and be gone. Like, that's how it should be done. It was done every year tour that way. But <laughs> They yeah. played Crumbs from Your Table in the Encore seven times, always next to Yahweh, for a particularly on-the-nose um, third-world hunger into God. God, <laughs> yeah. Encore. Yes. Where you yep. live should not decide whether you live or whether you die. That is a real U2 lyric. And a fun, fun B-side from this era was Fast Cars, which is mm-hmm. a extremely ramshackle, very funny, uh, but extremely fun song. Uh, That's where they get the album title of, from, right? Yeah, exactly. Like right. It literally mentions the, the title and the lyrics. And like that song for a minute was replacing Party Girl as like the song they would play as like a joke, you know, when they were having a blast. And I kind of wish I stuck with that. Um, so, but Briefly, bit. we're going to play... Love or peace or else. I just want to give a brief shout out to ESPN because uh, back in 2004, this is in the uh, thick of the baseball steroid scandal. And back in 2004, ESPN, they had this thing paged called Page Two on the website where they would try to be funny. So um, they wrote a song called. Yeah, that's right, pre Grantland. They wrote a song called Balco to the tune of Vertigo, which I thought was pretty funny. As in, hello, hello, I'm at at a place called Balco, it was juice, and that's something I could feel. So, (laughs) One thing I do want to mention, too, real quick about the Vertigo Tour is that it did a way better job than the Elevation Tour of featuring the new songs front and center and being like, fuck you, enjoy this. Like, City of Blinding Lights, you could not be blown away by the way they presented that, or Love and Peace, which I believe we're about to play. Um, where Bado comes out fucking drumming during the set. Like, Larry comes out on the catwalk and plays the drums, but then Bado goes hard on the drums. And like, like Radiohead playing there, there. Big drumming yeah, action. Exactly. And it segues right into Sunday, Bloody Sunday on the it's tour, right? Sunday. Like, yeah, that was pretty unbeatable. I mean, that, they did a good job with that. Like, casual fans, like, even if you had no idea what Love and Peace ever else was, you walked away from that being like, holy shit, that was, that was pretty cool. Like, not something you see every day. So... Lay down, lay down, lay our sweet love lay on the ground, lay your Uh 
And now we've come to kind of a crossroads, kind of a curious point in U2's career. It took them five years after How to Dismantle Atomic Bomb to release their follow-up, their 12th album. An album that I seem to remember as early as 2006 or 2007 hearing whispers that they were about to release and then completely forgot about it. And then No Line on the Horizon was released in early March of 2009. And this was... So I was 24 when this record came out. And I just distinctly remember... I was going through a huge renaissance in terms of the type of music I was being introduced to. And this was really the first album that in the moment when it was released by U2, I just didn't care about at all. And I kind of wrote it off and I ignored it for a long period in time. And in recent years, I've come around and really actually enjoy it. And I love what the band did on two thirds of this album. Um, but it's a really kind of confounding piece of work from U2 and kind of the first album that kind of showcase that the band is trying a little too hard to hit a home run when instead perhaps they should just focus on small victories because what you get with this record is something that feels very confusing when you listen to it the first time kind of subtly grows on you but is also very problematic particularly in its middle three tracks which i'm sure that we're all going to talk about here um what are you guys' thoughts on No Line on the Horizon? I I think before no offense, Dave, but I'm, I'm going to jump in and just use Brian Eno's quote. In fact, it's not even a quote. I think I think it's just a thought that is out there. You um, two notably wrote "Moment of Surrender" in like one like that. What you hear on the album is what they did in one take. Yes, um, and lots of people know that as like one of their best later period songs, and it, it totally is. Um, Brian Eno was reportedly extremely frustrated with the fact that they were able to write moment of surrender in like five minutes, but they spent four fucking months on auger crazy. If I don't encourage it. Really? That's just, yes. No, that's literally like the thing about this album. Like that's what needs to be said about this record. Like when they, when they are being you two, they're at their best, but when they are trying to do dumb pop catchy shit, that's them at their worst <laughs> in some ways. Um, yeah, when they're hanging out in Morocco and didn't they turn part of a hotel into like an open air studio or I think you kind of see it in the video from Magnificent. Yes. Is the first yeah. Right, the first four songs of this album, I think it's that's part of the Morocco portion is great. The title track Magnificence, this great wandering mystic ballad with Bono singing that he was born to sing for you. Moment of Surrender is great, and then Unknown Caller is clearly the best song to ever um, use, uh, like Macintosh Command for lyrics. <laughs> yeah, Macbook Command. The first time you hear that song is the most jarring thing ever, but you're like, that worked. Right. He really that just, did the Edge really just say, force quit and move to trash? trash. I think he did. It's, that it's song is great. Song, yeah. But then, like you kind of said, I would say songs five, six, and seven car come from a completely different album, a completely different style, and are so completely bad that 
you have to wonder if like Bono got dropped on his head during the recording and just there's after I mean there's no you think that if there was a god he would have somehow gotten you two to understand that um I'll go crazy if I don't go crazy tonight get on your boots and stand up comedy or arguably the Nadir of their entire career and the band responsible for the Joshua Tree has no business sounding like that. It's just, it's fucking stop. It's peaks and valleys. It's when you have to rely on, um, like Will I Am, they hope you co write a song. That's just a bad sign. You know, it's also interesting because, I mean, this, this album. They they go on the 360 tour afterwards, and, and not to jump too too far ahead with, with all this because I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to unpackage from from the uh, uh, from the record itself. But they kind of stop playing a lot of these songs on the tour, and yes. it kind of speaks to this like confusion within the album. Um, you know, one thing I'm just thinking right now, kind of to compare it ever so slightly to a release by Radiohead from just a couple years later. If you take out that middle section of No Line on the Horizon, and so... It's in Rainbows, right? No, no. No, um, okay. You go from Unknown Caller into Fez Being Born through the end. It's an eight-track album. Very similar in that sense to The King of Limbs. An Hmm. album that... I would argue has aged much better for Radiohead than in the moment. I, I did not like that record when it came out, and especially the last three tracks on that album, I think are some of the best pieces of music that the band's ever written and point directly towards a moon-shaped pool. But there's an argument to be made... that on, on stage, certainly. There's an argument to be made deeper. that this record would be better... You know, I know I'm the one who argued that Pop should have been a double album. Um, <laughs> there's an argument yeah. to be made that this album would have really benefited from being just a couple songs shorter. And, eight and, songs. Uh, yeah, eight songs, and yeah. that it thematically would have flowed better, and you don't have that just jarring middle section of it. I, I agree, but Winter, if you've heard that song, it's pretty amazing, and that was cut for whatever reason and tossed off on some soundtrack. If Winter had been this record, that would been really good. But yeah, yeah, those eight songs, yeah, that would be good too. I think there's another song soon that I don't know if that's actually out there in a full version, but that probably would be interesting because that's also from that like experimental Morocco period that, and that's what the album needed more of, of course. But you know. I think wasn't there like a lot of Morocco stuff, but they got scared that it was going to get too instrument, uh, too experimental, not commercial enough. So they kind of threw the middle section together, like not the last minute, but sort of. Yeah. Um, they they got, felt it had to be in there. Yeah. Right. They got nervous. I mean, from everything yeah, I've read, yeah. they also they didn't really enjoy the recording process of this. And this feels like the first time. Well, I guess, you know, you could make the same argument leading up to Octune Baby. But this feels like a, the start of a really interesting period for you two and a really frustrating period that we're still kind of in to a certain extent where they just labor over these records and don't really enjoy what they're doing in the process. Right. They labor over them and it just feels like it feels like they making the album for the record label for the guys in accounting that are going to lose their jobs with the U2 album tanks. Like they're not 
almost feel like if they had 20 songs and they gave them to us, they gave it to the fan base, we could put together a really good U2 song and keep stuff from like Get On Your Boots from ever, ever happening. Like that was that was the first single off this record was Get On Your Boots. And I mean, you want to talk about. It's my least like favorite U2 song of all time. I would also agree. Yeah. <laughs> really? Like, this song. <laughs> yes. The vocals got compared to Skate Club's Wild Wild West. So if you take the vocals from this song and meld them to the bass line from the song Refugee from War, you actually <laughs> have Wild Wild West by Escape Club. Though so actually, I, would, I will say, Get On Your Boots actually does a good, a good guitar riff, except yeah. it's totally wasted on a fucking terrible... So I actually do want to correct myself and say a stand-up comedy is my least favorite usage song of all time. Okay, which, okay. which is the song after Get On Your Boots. The song right after, which is fucking terrible. Um what I will say is really baffling about this record is that Magnificent was not the lead single. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a great song. Which is, Magnificent is, is a great classic Q2 song in all the right exactly. ways. I mean, it, it could even replace, honest to God, if they had released it as the lead single, that song could replace Beautiful Day or City of Blinding Lights in their live show to this day, and no one would bat an eye. Like, people would go just as nuts for it as they would those songs. But instead, they misused that song, didn't release it. Well, they released it as a single eventually, but... By that point, no one gave a shit about the album anymore. <laughs> so it, it was, was like, it like a third single. It was like the third single, and it's like really like after getting your boots and all go crazy. It's like whereas Magnificent had you released that as the first single, it probably would have done pretty well. I think. Um, yeah, the last portion of the third album is pretty good. Really, it's, really um, good stuff. I mean, Fed, it's really you know, interesting stuff. White is snow and cedars of Lebanon are very thematic. I mean, they thematically fit. I I feel like those those three songs they just make you want to stare at the album cover because they fit the album in just like an yes. overall artistic uh, uh feel but you know and it's so interesting because you stick breathe in there is the 10th song doesn't have any musical relation to those three songs around it but it somehow works really well in the latter part of the album um that even i could have opened the album just as well but, exactly exactly yeah. i was gonna say that um and that was a great opener on the uh uh, on the 360 tour that's that was a great use for it yeah. um I, I think it's baffling no line in the horizon didn't the title song did not see more of the light of day because that again when and what was funny was that when they played that live that actually usually got the best reception of the first few songs like yeah. of the songs from that record like because they would open this they would open a stadium tour with four songs from this record and yeah the title track will usually was the one that actually got the best reception um and with the crowd like yelling back the wordless chorus and it was a good it was a good energy to that um but i i think some some things really could be sequenced more interestingly about this record um like imagine a world where fez being born was the album opener which i think it was mm. actually looked at at one point to be you know that would have been a old bold U2 move. You know that yeah. obviously they wouldn't do. It but. just it, to me it feels like a lost album in the sense that it didn't have any real hits, and it sort of gets lost in the shuffle, wedged in between uh, songs of innocence and how to dismantle an atomic bomb. And I know um, as U2 tends to do, they like I say they always diss their old. The previous records, when they happened to be promoting a new one, I think they got their favorite surrogate, uh, what's his, uh, their favorite surrogate, Jimmy Ivine, Jimmy Ivine, to say. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, they say no line on the horizon. It was unfinished. They never finished that album. It was unfinished. That's why I failed. Unfinished. It's like that was the fake news. It's unfinished. And uh, I think it. it kind I, of I is, can see what he's getting at. I think it's kind of in line with pop in the sense that they spent the whole lead up of the album telling people it was going to be this experimental detour and that they were ready to kind of shake things up again and they'd spend all this time in Morocco. And while there's definitely some experimentation on here and there's some, you know, really interesting songwriting and, and, and really interesting ap- approaches, um, you know, the, the middle third of the record is about as traditional, straightforward rock and roll as you could get. And they kind of shaved off, you know, good deal of the sort of experimentation that it sounds like they have been doing. And I think that that was a bit of a letdown for people. You know, this is the, this was a record that I think there was probably some hype around. They had started the process recording with Rick Rubin, um, which, mm. you know, really meant something in 2006, I think compared to now, yeah. um, which did yield one song, which totally should be mentioned, uh, which is window in disguise from the U218 signal collection. Yes. Yes, which actually is probably one of the most lush songs that Rick Rubin has ever produced. Um, two things I would never think to mention together, but <laughs> yeah, that's re- that's to be mentioned because yeah, Rick Rubin material I don't think really made it to No Light on the Horizon. So if you want to hear what might have been, I did want to make one comparison, and that is that Breathe is not only a song from No Light on the Horizon, but it is also total. Or obviously, it's a song from No Light on the Horizon. It's a song from How Does This Man All the Time Bomb. Totally. Yes, it's yeah, also literally is very time bomb. It's straight of a time bomb, but it's also YouTube's version of Departure by R.E.M., like straight down to the lyrics. Oh, yeah. yeah. The, I see that. Dylan gibberish. Yeah. Yeah. Is like like gibberish traveling, uh, just arrived Singapore, San Sebastian, Spain. Yeah. Like it, the lyrics are, yeah, the delivery is the same. Both would be great openers. Yeah. Just had to throw it out there, but. Sorry, go ahead, Brian. I was just going to say, I, I think, um, and this is something I've felt, I felt recently, Cedars of Lebanon is one of their strongest album closers, even though it's one of the most subtle songs they've ever written. Um, I would put it up there with, like, 40 and... Um, Love is Blindness. Love is Blindness. I mean, you guys know how I feel about Mothers of the Disappeared. Um, yeah. uh, and how I feel about it. <laughs> yeah. And ironically, I would also say that Cedars of Lebanon is one of their most Eno songs too, because it literally samples um, a song that Eno did with Harold, Harold Budd, Budd yeah, called, yeah, yeah, Against the Sky, which is one of my all-time favorite pieces they ever did together um, from their album The Pearl, um, and it's a pretty notable sample, and it works really, really well um, with Bono's like very uh, meditative lyrics, I would say. So, kind of, um, I mean, just in terms of like final thoughts on this on this record i I think you know in 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 talking about the tour um we've said this uh i think it just should be further emphasized i think this tour would have been would have benefited so much more from being uh, an arena tour rather than a stadium tour i think the fact that they decided to turn this into a massive stadium show just confounded them that much more in terms of what they were supposed to do with the songs on this record as well as the songs from their career and um you know it's it's interesting how uh like the 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 360 dvd that came out um it features uh 
the unforgettable fire on it the song the unforgettable fire which i loved hearing but it's it's clear watching that show the band didn't totally know what to do at that point this really feels like the first time in probably 10 12 years at this point in time where you two just didn't totally know what to do with what they had yeah 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 yeah. they had no idea how to to present what, what they had because they they also tried they tried a lot of wild shit in the store like they brought out your blue room from the passenger album live at mm-hmm. stadiums and it's like that's crazy to think about but it's like they had they been in arenas they could have totally played a song like Cedars of Lebanon was never clicked live or White as Snow that's one I really particularly like and think would have worked pretty well live if had it been an arena show but it would have fallen flat on its face in the stadium and Willie Williams even tried to convince them to play it like. At, like in between October and New Year's Day, but he wasn't able to convince them. But yeah, a song like Moment of Surrender, if you saw the 360 tour, I think most people would agree that Moment of Surrender was like the most, I just said this about 40 on the Vertigo tour, but it was a very drawn out closer. Like it was not, like it was after Winter Without You. Most of the crowd had checked out at that point. And it was just kind of like a drag. It's like an eight minute long song on the album. <laughs> That, yeah exactly like know. like it's it's powerful on the record but live it really didn't find its footing i guess like as well okay it did but like not in a stadium setting like i feel like it would have been a lot more captive in an arena transitioning into like a bat or something like that to close the show but completely agree of course yeah as a stadium song it just kind of felt like the crowd did not give a shit at all and everybody left early so let's listen to some of it yes Bez. Crazy song, yeah. Imagine this as a show opener, <laughs> which they should have done if it had been an arena tour. But. Fez backslash being born. Here we go.
Okay, so now we're uh, up to 2014, which is the fateful year that one day America turned on their iPhones and said, oh, there's a new U2 record in here. If you're like me, you thought, that's cool. I was going to download it anyway, so I'll just download it now. But a lot of people thought, fuck those guys. This is malware on my phone. So that's all we'll say about the rollout of this album, because uh, that was a lot of people's focus on, although maybe it was kind of a silly thing in retrospect. There's a lot more to say good and bad about Songs of Innocence, aside from um, how it was rolled out in conjunction with Apple putting the album on your iPhone. When I think of Songs of Innocence... This is the record where you two desperately wanted to sound like the cool kids. To me, this album is focus group to death, and that's the biggest problem with it. It has many, many producers, among which include Danger Mouse and Ryan Tedder of One Direction fame, the uh, vaguely Christian alt-rock bro behind such classics as Apologizing, Counting Stars. He's co-writing you two songs. But, uh, Bono is going to him and saying, you know, you, you, we know that you're good at what you do, so like, help us out here. And this is an album where you can play, like, spot the uh, late 20, late 2000s, early 2010s alt-rock influence. Like the song California, okay, that's Arcade Fire's No Cars Go with a synthesizer taken from a killer song right at the bridge. Um, my goodness, this is where you can reach me now. That's their attempt at making a Franz Ferdinand song. And because it's got all these different producers, a lot of the songs sound different. The production kind of sounds different throughout the album. I don't think it was mixed particularly well. It just sounded like something they had to get out there in the world, and they just kind of threw it at you. And when a lot of these songs are stripped down to their um, acoustic versions, like a song like Every Breaking Wave, that's a great song. It sounds very good when it's uh, played stripped down. The songwriting, for the most part, holds up, but it's such a sonic mess that I just have a lot of problems with it. And... I tried listening to it. I mean, after initially fucking hating it, like feeling like offended by this U2 album that the guys who wrote Where the Streets Have No Name and In God's Country and all of Octum Baby felt reduced to using fucking Ryan Tedder to write songs. Like, come on, that's come on, guys. Look inward, look in the mirror. You don't need a professional mimbo hired gun like that guy on your record you just don't you're not that old you're smarter than that and i mean he's behind the song song for someone which that's got to be like a bottom five u2 song for me and it's the album is not as bad as i initially thought but it's probably my least favorite u2 record just because i think sonically and thematically it's all over the place i know they tried to Opt for um, the innocence being talking about, um, you know, Bono growing up in Ireland. There's a lot of songs that directly address um, violence that he witnessed with uh, the IRA, whatnot, growing up. And, but, you know, even so, he kind of does so and it's like a vague 
impersonal manner that that doesn't even really hit that close to home. So I'll have more to say about this record, but I'm curious to uh, hear what, what you guys have to say about it. I'll begin with another anecdote like I did for No Line on the Horizon about the sequencing of this record, and that is the fact that originally they wanted to open the album with This Is Where You Can Reach Me Now, which I think the three of us can agree is a excellent song yeah um and yeah. yes it does yes it does sound like franz ferdinand but it's an excellent song um that was originally gonna be the album opener but somewhere along the way they decided that the intro was too long and that they wanted to open with something immediate and so they opened with the wordless chorus nonsense that has plagued the 2000s like music like <laughs> chart <laughs> you know too many miracle this. joy ramones yeah and then we get the wordless it you chorus. like the ramones motherfucker yeah. who doesn't like the, the wordless chorus kicks into a song called The Fucking Miracle of Joey Ramone, which is one of the most bafflingly bad things that I've ever done. Like, I will go on record and say before, I'll let Brian say more, but I hate the first five songs of this album, but I love the last, what, six songs. So, okay, Brian, go for it before I delve into that more. <laughs> I think Every Breaking Wave is one of their best songs ever. That's fair. <laughs> I think I think that song is very badly produced. I think I think at its core that's a really good song, but I think it sounds like a shitty like alt rock like like late two thousands alt rock song and that's the problem, which isn't totally YouTube's fault. Like it's not the song's fault. It's just the way it ended up yeah. coming out that totally sounds that way. This- like California actually ends ends up being a pretty good song too, but the intro and everything is like so really, so that's really that's kind of the, the the takeaway I've had from this album recently and is so in the moment I, I this this record probably reminds me most of all that you can't leave behind because it's so deliberately again looking backwards and yes. I just I, this will tie into songs of experience because obviously there's so much connectivity between those two albums and and it's been this idea the band has had for what they've been going through this process of, of trying to track their, their, their 40 year career through two albums for now seven years. I mean, this is the most exhaustive thematic process that they've gone through since the early nineties. And instead of looking forward, so much of it has been looking backwards and that's, you know, not to take away from some of the positives of it, but, you know this record um when it first came out i had a very similar reaction to uh the way i felt about no line on the horizon and now four years later um i don't dislike it nearly as much i think it was unfairly maligned mainly due to its rollout and the fact that they were kind of going for this please everyone type of sound um i think the best thing to come from this record is their revivaling of their excellent tours and i think the innocence and experience tour was a fantastic tour with some really excellent moments and uh i think that thematically this album came out better live than it did on record and I think it directly led to everything great that they did with the Joshua Tree Tour. And if last night's, we're recording this here on May 3rd, if last night's tour opener in Tulsa is any sign, a really great tour that 
you know could unfold here on the uh, on the Experience and Innocence tour. So I think that that's got to be noted what it did influence. But um, yes, I'm curious your thoughts, Ryan. Yeah, I think I, for me this this record had a lot more potential because this is one. It's kind of like No No Line on the Horizon where there's a more experimental side to it that they didn't explore as much, um, and instead just kind of went with this. It's almost like they took the middle three songs of No Line and made stretched that out to the first half. Except, yeah. I will give songs like Every Breaking Wave and, um, I guess Iris, you know, more credit because those are like much deeper songs than like stand-up comedy. But like at their core, those are literally pop songs. Like Iris is still a pop song, even though it's about Bob's mom. Like it's it's something that you could see One Republic writing or something like that. But like all the stuff they did with Danger Mouse, which means like cedarwood road sleep like a baby tonight like those are really unique songs for sure um and I, and i don't think they're terribly experimental okay maybe sleep like a baby tonight is but um i feel like there there's more of that side that they could have dug into a bit more and luckily they did with songs of experience which we'll talk about soon what about um, didn't they also use um one of the big credited producers as like their live sound man or like declan somebody or they use declan gaffney yes right for, Declan uh, gaffney or, yeah he was on a lot of it in paul epworth he, that's what i was going to mention my big oh God, issue, paul epworth Oof, okay. yeah paul epworth used to do some great stuff but then once he started working with like adele he stopped but my biggest complaint about the strip down every breaking wave is that is that it's literally you two doing adele which is it, I, I, I can't I can't get I can't disagree with that. And you yeah, know, every breaking I, I wave is is so in, it's it's interesting. So Danger Mouse, Ryan Tedder, and Declan Gaffney are listed as the producers on that song, which yeah, which is it's just too it's many cooks. I, I too think many, that, that's truly. I think that this and uh, I, I don't again I don't want to give away the thing that I that that I, I want you two to do going forward. Um, but, okay. but you used to fucking work with Brian Eno, Daniel Lanois, and Steve Leeway. Now you're working with Ryan Tedder, Danger Mouse, and Declan Gaffney. Danger Mouse is fine. Um, in fairness, um, he did. Uh, I, I I don't I don't hate him. I I think I think he does. He gets some interest. His thing with Beck, Modern Guilt, was really good. Oh, well, that's that. that's his best that's work. That's his record. best work. I yeah, that's a great X, record, and I think I think X. I think he worked well with the Chili Peppers too. So I I can't write off Danger Mouse. Entirely. I think the challenge for for their approach at this point, and it, it kind of goes back oh. to what they were doing ahead of No Line on the Horizon. Like they started a recording session with Rick Rubin, it may or may not have worked out. Same with like you know their their early recording sessions with Danger Mouse, but you know you two in nineteen eighty four, they record an album with Brian Eno. And Daniel Lenoir, that I mean, it's my personal favorite U2 record. I would argue it's not a perfect record, and it's definitely kind of an unfinished record. Um, I kind of wish that they would have done that with both of. I, I would have loved to have heard what happened when they were inspired working with either Rick Rubin or working with Danger Mouse here. Definitely, and and just let them put that out. Yeah. My my big thing with with songs of innocence is that they they write this off as a per, they at the time they talked about how personal this record was yeah and how like how big and like important this album was supposed to be when I thought it was full of shit like honestly like I I felt that if they if they had just stuck to the more interesting songs on this record and like gone down that road instead instead of trying to please everybody 
like we said, with the focus grouping and the one size fits allness of this record, like it would have been far more interesting. And luckily, again, <laughs> I know we're going to get to it, but they did that, which is good. Um, like it, it, it wasn't like the chorus is like there isn't there's not a hit on this record. Like every breaking wave could be. That's the thing. I don't think every breaking wave saw the potential it could have. And Brian, if you believe it did, that's that's fine. But I think that song could have been a lot more than it was. I I, um, I love but, that song, but I but I, I mean I I don't disagree with you. I think that there is some there's more to it. Yeah. I mean I think that you're you don't that song has a has a perfect opportunity for like one of the biggest edge. Uh, guitar solos in U2 and like Bono just wailing at the end, uh, you know, something like off of Octune Baby and it's it's much more subdued and I, th- I think that it misses out on the opportunity to really be a big song. The and Edge one song is that actually, strangely uh, muted on this album. The guitar is mixed very low. It is. Which I don't though, understand. There's a good exception to that, which is Cedarwood Road which has an excellent, excellent ending to that song. In fact, I, I would argue that has some of Bono's best, like, ending vocals, you know, where he's, you know, really wailing at the end. Um, it's really passionate. That that song, okay, I did just say that this album feels impersonal, and, you know, you two talked a big game about that, but Cedarwood Road actually does feel pretty personal, and he did they did a really good job of, like, nailing down, like... Is that a street exactly. where... Bono witnessed like an Irish car bombing, or no? He grew up on that street. That was more about him meeting his like his friends and like okay coming into his own and growing up. Raised by Wolves is the Raised... song that's about okay, right? That's Raised by Wolves yeah. and yeah, and Volcano. The that's the one that that's got the big bass line. Yeah, it's Volcano, big... Volcano. That's a good. That's a good musically song. You know, it's a it, bit it silly. It's a Declan Gaffney song. That's where he yeah. actually turns up the bass. You get like the Adam Clayton <laughs> post punk bass again. Exactly. That song wasn't post punk enough. Like I feel like they could have, they could have really turned that into like an Interpol song, but they didn't go all the way there. Um, I think what this album really teaches, I, I wish that you two would really learn from this lesson, is that there doesn't need to be this like big theatrical aspect to their their albums going forward. They their songs by nature are huge, and yep. at when they're written at their best and. By nature, their their albums are going to have this overarching theme, and you know, when you look at all that you can't leave behind, um, I mean, granted, unintentionally, you know, it, it it became one of the biggest and most important albums of its time, just based on what was happening politically and globally. But you know, it's almost as though they're they they tried with this record so hard to force us to really care about who they were as individuals before they became U2, before we ever heard these songs. And there was never a moment where we had the opportunity to hear a song like Cedarwood Road or The Miracle of Joy Ramon if it had been written, if it had had a different title, for Christ's sake. And be like, holy shit, he's actually talking about this moment when he met all of his friends or he's talking about that first moment that he heard the Ramones or, or any band. It doesn't really matter that it's Joey Ramone. Like what Bono's writing about in that song is really relevant. They just mm-hmm. kind of wanted to hit you over the head with what they were trying to do in such a way that like it just it takes they, away from the overall emotional impact. 
they talk too big of a game on this album and they learned their lesson with that because like taking take the crystal ballroom for example this was a song that lots of people really liked in the fan base and i think it's a fine song i don't think it's a great song i don't think it was worth all the hype but it's I mean, B side too. It's a B side. It, it it definitely was a B side, and like they would go. You two started out the Innocence Experience where they weren't playing that song, and everyone was like, "Crystal Bar and Bono play Crystal Bar." You two play Crystal Bar, and Bono kept hyping it up like, "We're gonna play it. We're gonna play it. We're gonna play it." You know, it's like hyping it up to be this like huge good song, and then like they played it, and I was at the first show they played it, and it fell flat on its face. <laughs> and, they played like, it twice. They played it once, yeah, and then they played it again in Boston where they, like, did a medley of Crystal Barroom and Miss You by the Rolling Stones, which actually worked in a weird way, <laughs> but the, it was no wonder why it wasn't played again. No one really wanted it to come back, because it, again, it wasn't, there wasn't as much to it as I said there was. Like, I like the idea of the lyrics, you know, it, it being about Bono seeing his parents dance or whatever, um, like, looking into the past, but that I, I think a lot of these songs on this record don't see their full potential. Um, yeah. There are two that... Actually, there are three that I say totally do. And coincidentally, they're all in a row. And that is Cedarwood Road, um, which I've already talked about. Sleep Like a Baby Tonight, which sounds like a Zeropa outtake, weirdly enough. Like, it, yeah. it's really yeah. dark, really yeah. cool. It's got the falsetto. Like, if if they dared... Jumping ahead. If they dared stretch out the McFist a bit, that they brought back for the experience and essence tour. That would be a great, great song to use in that bit. Um, and then a song that again, we've mentioned, which is, this is where you can reach me now, which I think is the most realized song on this record. It sounds excellent. Danger mouse is the sole producing credit on it. So you can tell that's kind of, if, if you want to look at the one song that probably is representative of what this album could have been, it's totally that one. Um, Oh, and one song, one song worth mentioning that is arguably better than almost any song on this record, um, <laughs> but yet isn't on the album itself, is Invisible, which right. you mm. talked up a lot. And that's a really legitimately great song that a lot of people really liked. And yep, a non-album single that everybody's going to forget in a couple of years, probably. So, unfortunately. One song that we can all agree on as being good is... This is where you can reach me now, where Bono gets his best Alice Capranos and disco hi hat on. So let's listen to that song right now. Oh, 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 
you two kind of hobbled themselves in terms of talking a big game about their music. But what they didn't get humbled about was talking about how soon their next record was going to be released. Those who know remember that No Line on the Horizon was going to have a companion album called Songs of Ascent that still has never seen the light of day. Um, so for most U2 fans, when Bono and The Edge kept talking up the fact that there was going to be an album called Songs of Experience, we were just like, yeah, well, sure, whatever. We'll believe it when we see it. They went on a successful tour for Songs of Innocence. It went over pretty well. Then Bono had a brush with mortality that we don't know the whole details of. And then the year was 2017, and U2 is like, oh, it's the 30th anniversary of the Joshua Tree. We should do something for this. And so they went on a big, successful 51-date tour that sold out all around the world and was pretty awesome, in fairness, where they played the entirety of the Joshua Tree. But they didn't release that fucking new album that they, they said that they would. They took a good almost four years to do so. And they said it was coming, they said it was coming. They debuted a song called You're the Best Thing About Me, continuing the tradition of 2000s U2 songs having way too long of titles. (laughs) And while You're the Best Thing About Me wasn't the worst song, it also wasn't the best song. It was just kind of like, okay, sure, whatever. Even there's a bit more to it beneath the surface. Then we got another song called Get Out of Your Own Way. And it seemed like, okay, you two actually might be releasing an album. And lo and behold, on December 1st, 2017, we finally got a new U2 album just three years after, almost four years after the previous, called Songs of Experience. And to pretty much everyone's surprise that cares about U2, the album was pretty incredible, actually, for the most part. Yes, they had three singles in the middle of it. You're the best thing about me, as already mentioned. Get out of your own way, as already mentioned. And then a big, outrageous rock song called American Soul that has Kendrick Lamar at the beginning of it. And it sounds a bit like in the vein of Vertigo and Elevation, but has a bit more punch to it in a weird way. But if you took, if you, if you listen to the record beyond those songs, you would find U2's deepest and most subtle record since pop, if not before that. And what is, I would say, undoubtedly, most people would agree, their best album since pop, if not before that. Um, Gentlemen, what do you have to say? Uh, Certainly, one thing I like about Songs of Experience a lot compared to Songs of Innocence is that it's definitely more of more of a piece, which is to say all of the production sounds the same. It doesn't have the wild shifts in production and mixing. I mean, I think they still use multiple producers, but it, everything sounds like it should be on one album and it holds together very well as an album. And it's probably, I'd say it probably is their most complete top to bottom album since pop. That said, to me, it still kind of feels like a copy of all that you can't leave behind in the sense that that album was a copy of the glory days. This kind of almost feels like a copy of the copy. I think it's fine. There's definitely some songs that I like. I don't get excited about very much of it, while at the same time understanding that in terms of crafting an album that sounds unified it's probably their best attempt at doing that in quite a while. 
I would fully agree with you, Ryan. I think that this is... I would go one step further. I would say this is their best album since Zuropa. Um, I think that this is the closest we've come to you two actually honoring their past, but more importantly, looking towards what's next. And I think in a song like Red Flag Day, which I think is the song that we're going to play and the blackout and the two lead singles, especially as well. Um, you hear early U2, but you hear early U2 only in, I don't know, a song. shadow. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a shadow of, of, of what they're trying to do going forward. And I didn't expect an album like this at this point in their career at all. Um, I actually, I bought this album on vinyl recently because I, I like the way that it's sequenced. I like the way that it fully sounds, and I wanted to listen to it on my big speakers. Um, and I'm really glad I did. I, I like having a later day U2 record in that format. Um, you know, I think if there's anything critical to say about it, I'm just exhausted with this Songs of uh, approach that U2 has been going on since teasing us with Songs of Ascent. I I kind of just want U2 to... I don't just know, make a fucking record. Just yeah. make a record. I don't need a record yeah. that like tells the story of how you went from being boys to being men and, and, and everything that happened yeah. in between. I want just a record of concepts of where they are right now. Um, yeah, this record that definitely, that the last album kind of got them a bit humbled. I think they even um, their disline of songs of innocence was they admitted that it was a bit overproduced, too too many producer cooks in the kitchen, and they definitely rectified that on this album. Yeah, there's still a lot of producers here, but it still it sounds way more cohesive. It's like it's it's impressive. Like Ryan Tedder is on this album, but you actually can't tell it all. Like yeah. it sounds more like a Steve Lilly White or a, a Jackknife Lee record in a lot of ways. Like it's 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 impressive to hear a song like to me. They sound confident on this record, and yeah. that's a huge thing. Whereas I don't think they've sounded confident, this confident in a long time. Literally, the first line of the lights of Lights of Home is "Shouldn't be here because I should be dead." which is one of the strongest like even though love, yes love is all we have left is the opener but lights of home is spiritually like where yeah. the album really begins and that to me is one of the strongest things that bon has ever said like on a on an opening song and, and that song and it's got heim it's got the heim yeah, sisters it's got, on it it's got on it yeah exactly that song man when they played that last night in Tulsa one thing that i know bono has been itching for and i think it was the biggest problem that they had with the with the no line on the horizon songs no one in the audience knew the song uh knew the lyrics nobody yelled the lyrics back at them like they did in earlier in earlier uh albums the the crowd in tulsa was belting out the chorus they loved lights of home and that that is a great great song and it's just like it feels again like you said brian it, it feels it has touches of old u2 but that's the song where U2 is going in the future, I think. It's still simple. It's still something you can break down and play on an acoustic guitar. In fact, the string version is pretty much an acoustic version. 
and it sounds fucking incredible. No, no matter which way you look at it, you can play it the balls out high rock way. You can play it the acoustic way. It sounds great no matter which way you look at it. And lyrically, it's just such a strong song. And it takes on the, on the Innocence Experience tour. Bono tried so hard to make the ending of Iris a sing along. Mm-hmm, well, mm-hmm. he instead repurposed those lyrics and put them at lights to home. And it's like, okay, yeah, this is your fucking sing along because this is a song that people really like and can relate to and can get into. Um, and that's truly one of their strongest songs, I think, um, at least of the 2000s. But it's, I don't know, I've been listening to it quite a lot since December, so I don't know, it might be in the all time discussion for me. Like, it's, mm. it's up there. Um, not, not, I wouldn't say top 10 or anything like that, but. It is for me one of the best songs I've written since the 2000s, and the other song, and this is without a doubt my favorite song on this record. And for a lot of fans, I know this one clicked very early, and we all thought that this was destined to be a YouTube live classic. But it didn't even see the stage last night, and that is the little things that give you away. Um, yeah, that's which, definitely that's my favorite song on the album. Yeah, it's, were, it won the fan poll of favorite songs on the record and its absence last night was kind of baffling um but it it already cemented itself as a live classic on the joshua tree tour when it was an unreleased song and they used it as the show closer that's how again youtube being confident like they didn't they didn't have to talk again about that song they just said okay uh this is a song of experience and they played it and really good career summation that song it kind of has everything that it the does. build up is great it's a great ballad it peaks wonderfully it the has vintage it. sounding edge solo it's just a very well put together classic u2 song that yeah. yeah that's um bono soars at the end of it and it's like that that's what yeah that's what songs like kite and songs like City of Blinding Lights, I think, you know, I, those songs are great. Don't be wrong. We've talked a lot about those songs and they're great and all, but I, I think they didn't quite get there, you know, like pushing the classic tier. Like they, they're great songs, but I think little things kind of jumped over all of them by like really hitting the mark. I don't know. I think, I think it's, they did a good job with that song. It's their single best song in several years, I'd say. Definitely. Um, but they did a good job. They did a good job of dabbling in a bunch of styles on this. Like I, like I said earlier, I alluded. Summer Love is kind of like thematically in the same vein of a man and a woman. Like yeah. it's about singing this like lower register, very relaxed type song. You know, it's actually yet again a song about refugees, and you know, it could easily be a '60s California hippie smoking weed song. You know, oh no, it sounds like. Um... It sounds like what's the song that like um, was Oliver Stone used in all his movies? Uh, Time of the season with the zombies. Time of the season, yeah, yeah no, it does. Yeah. It's, it's got the same groove and it works really well. And then you have a song like Red Flag Day, which sounds like you know war, but updated. Yeah. You know, it doesn't sound exactly like war. And then there's the Showman, which I, I've always thought this is this is a funny song because the the first time I heard it, I was like, really, you two, really? And then the second time I heard it, I was like, oh. They're finally paying tribute. They're finally paying tribute to Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, it's literally it's it's literally like Ros, uh, Rosalita or something like that. It like totally it, is. It's, it, well, it's, it's also not, kind of a song where they're kind of making fun of themselves. Like Bonos. they are. Yeah. It it works it works well in the context of the record too. Like it, it's something that shouldn't work, but it does. Like that's the thing with the, with the, the the sequencing of this record is so good. That has to be said. Like even the jargonness of 
the ballsy rock refugee Jesus worst thing Bono has ever said on a song of American soul into summer of love that works when you hear it or, you know, landlady going right into blackout. Like all these transitions work really well. I'm just trying to think what's worse than singing refugee Jesus on a U2 album. That's pretty bad. There's, there's nothing that Bono has ever said. That's better. Not even Elvis ate America on passengers, which I find hilarious. Actually, (laughs) Um, it just, it doesn't fit on passengers, but it's pretty hilarious. Um, yeah, no, nothing is worse than Refugees. But ironically, American Soul is like not a bad rock song at all. Um, right, right. Well, and I think I, fans, I remember I remember when the yeah. Blackout video debuted, and that my first thought when that song was released, I think it was in August, was yes. there are certain bands you never give up, you never give up on, and yes. it was this moment for me of of I. It, it was the first U2 single that had been released and I don't even know how long where, you know, debut for the album where I, I didn't question for a second whether or not I liked it. I just immediately yeah. was hooked. Um, so, you know, the interesting thing about this record where we are here, I mean, every record, obviously, that we've talked about, we, we know kind of what it led to we know what the tour was like we know the highs and lows and kind of the hindsight of this this record's only six months old at this point in time there's a lot of time to grow with it and i i certainly have higher expectations for how i'll feel about this record than i have for a lot of their recent work um in terms of where you two is at this point in time we're 40 plus years into a career um i'm curious for you guys as they move forward and as they age, which I, I, I as an aside, I, I think that they're going to struggle with age more than certain other rock bands just because of how complex their shows are and just because I, Bono's voice is definitely taking a little bit more of a beating in later years than, than certain other rock stars. Um, what are What is one thing you guys wish U2 does going forward? with whatever remaining time they have in their career. All right. If I was, uh, I was guy with Siri, I would tell you to, the biggest thing holding you back is that you have it in your mind that every album, if every album doesn't try to solve world hunger and make world peace and be a huge artistic statement, it's a failure. I don't think that's true. I would tell you two to find a French villa, maybe the same one where the Rolling Stones record Exile on Main Street, rent it for like three weeks, bring like eight cases of Jameson, don't tell anybody you're going there, just take your instruments, lock yourself in it, and just drink as much Jameson as possible and just fucking jam. And... Don't get Danger Mouse to mix it. Don't give the tapes to any big-name producer. Mix it yourselves, and then just drop it. Don't do any promotional run-up. Just, like, have a surprise. One day we look on Pitchfork or Brooklyn Vegan and say, new 12-track U2 album just, like, released. Because I think the best Nick could possibly do is just go someplace, vanish, bang it the fuck out, put it out, say, here's your fucking U2 album. 
And I don't think they'll ever do that because I don't think that they're capable of just making a record for shits and giggles anymore. I think without thinking about it for the longest yeah, time. Yeah. Exactly. They're not capable of just doing like a zoo rope, but just like playing for fun and putting it out because they've got more money than God and they can do whatever the hell they want to do. They still feel at this stage because they're U2, they have to reinvent the wheel and be the Rolling Stone album of the year. And David Frick has to give it like 17 stars every time (laughs) or they failed. And I think the best thing they could do is get out of your own way, make a record because it's fun, get drunk, rehash the past, then just drop it on the internet, and that's that. By the way, think, I think I, about get on your way. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I don't. I don't think it's going to happen. I think that probably they'll put out another record. In, I don't know, like four or five years, and hopefully Bono can still sing at that point. Hopefully they're all healthy and happy. I mean, they don't have to do anything. They could. They have enough money to retire seventy-eight times over. Definitely. For me, what I would like to see you two do is do zoo.com. Yes, I think the Joshua Tree was such a success. Yeah, the the tour that was such a success. But take that a step further. Yes, it's okay to look back sometimes, but what I said about the Joshua Tree that I loved was that they went out there and played it like it was their new album. They didn't use any archival footage. They didn't rely on speeches and stories about the old Joshua Tree tour. So why not do that for Zoo TV, which was so ahead of its time that you could easily update it to the modern day, which I think they're kind of eating into that now because they're having McFisto be on the experience tour. Which, as long as they flesh out that idea more, as in drop elevation and vertigo, or at least move them and do like a whole suite of McFisto stuff, then fine, leave it there. But otherwise, I, McFisto I think was, being his, um, McFisto being the like, like devilish alter yes, ego that surfaced. Yeah, I right. forgot. I forgot to uh, give some background on that. But yes, McFisto is kind of like the embodiment of the devil that Bono created um, for the Zoo TV. Um, you know, so much of the themes of ZTV are still relevant today, and I think you know a slight update could be a lot of fun. Um, yes, I would like to make a new record, like Dave said, um, but I'm very pleased with Songs of Experience, and don't I can't really think of the next album yet because I like this one that much, and you know, I'm still in the the shock that oh wow, you two actually released a really good and relevant record in 2017. Um, like. It was actually my top ten last year and everything, um, but yeah, I'd like to see him. I'd like to see him work with exclusively Steve Lilly White because I tend to think he really gets some of their best material and they work really quickly with him. So I think they, they, they you know, I love Brian Eno to death, obviously, and I love Flood and people like that. But I think Lily White is YouTube's true like guy. Like they've been with him since the beginning, and it's just like yeah, just being out album with him like he used to. Brian. Um, so I've got. I, I, I love you guys' ideas. I I kind of have a like A and B. They're they're similar to, to what both of you guys are saying. Um, uh, in terms of recording an album, um, not as extreme as Dave. I don't necessarily want you two to produce their own work. Um, I think that they need, time. I, I, I think that they need someone to to step in. 
But I, I just want them to, like I was saying. Get Dave Cobb. Get, like, the Nashville guy behind, like, Sturgill Simpson and Chris Stapleton that produces the U2 album. <laughs> you get Ryle and Humbart, too. I, <laughs> I just want them to get an idea for a record, write some songs, and release an album in late 2019. I don't need it to drop without any press. I'm fine with a roll-up. I, I just want them to once, before this is all over, just put out an album and yes. just see what happens. You know, like, these guys get together in a room. I don't care where they go. Get inspired by something. We obviously live in turbulent times, which lends themselves very well to you too. <laughs> like, there's so much that they could write about right now. Um but there's also like so much from a personal standpoint. I mean, you know, who knows? Maybe this exercise in songs of innocence and experience could result in a breakthrough in some of the greatest, you know, latter day Bono lyrics just from a personal standpoint. Um, I just I don't want to wait until 2021 or 2022 and read about these reports of you two works with Jack Antonoff. Uh, is that how you, how you pronounce oh, it? Oh God! Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think I think luckily they they have a little bit better taste than that, as bad as but some of their do they know? So, yeah, One Republic, which which, which um, the the podcast guys over at New York Times said that that's that's what they would recommend you to do is is just hire Jack Jack Antonoff. Um, Those guys can go fuck themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Um, going on record starting beef <laughs> um but but my, my my point is like i don't i don't want to hear about them in a session with him and then they're in japan recording with brian eno and then they're in la and they finally cobble together this record and it just sounds like an overproduced overthought overwrought mess um you know which if there's anything critical that you can say about songs of experience and i don't by any means think that it's a flawless record i think it still does it, it suffers in a certain way from the the approach of the last couple of records so i just i just want to hear a u2 record i just want to hear what they sound like when they get an idea and they intentionally push forward in that um the other thing and i i hadn't really thought about this until you you mentioned it ryan um but i think that there is definitely a place for it um you know, I think the Joshua Tree lent itself to this. I would love to see either on this tour or in a future tour, just a random night in some random city. They just decide we're going to play Octune Baby front to back. And then some other random night they play War front to back. And I think that that could be a really cool experience for fans to catch something like that from you 2 in a way that you know, seeing these albums come to life, I mean, hearing the Joshua Tree live in the way that it was sequenced, you heard it in a totally different way. And it made you listen to that album in a different way than, um, you know, you would have even before. And I, I, I love the approach that certain bands are taking in terms of playing an album start to finish in the live setting. We're all going to experience this together. And I think that they have probably four or five records that they could do that with, and it would really add to the overall mystique of their of their live shows. Definitely, you mm. know, I would 
I'd be scared of them doing war because that means they would do red light in the refugee. But um, otherwise, <laughs> boy, boy would sound pretty amazing, even if modern day YouTube played it for the record. Um, they could actually Oxenbeam, do that really well. They could, honestly. The way I would argue boy? that some of the. Yes. Yeah, I can't recent- sing those songs anymore. Bono can hit those notes. I mean, maybe. But listen to him play Electrico nowadays. So he does great with that song. Or on Tub on the Vertigo tour, he did great with too. So. Yeah, I don't think he play all of those songs. I mean, all back to back to back between the speed of the tempos and the octaves that he'd be required to climb. I think it would. It'd be a challenge. Yeah, it would tough. certainly be a challenge. I'm not saying. It. I, I just think you know, it, it it would add some aspect to where U2 is right now from a live band, from a band that's clearly spent the last 20 years looking towards their glory days and saying, how do we do this again? Well, just give us just, the unforgettable fire once randomly. Yeah, they they should, they should honestly, for a band that looks back so much, they don't do it as well as they should. That's that's my big thing with them. Like They, they don't want to be a nostalgia band, but it's like there are ways to acknowledge your past without you know just being a cover band of yourself like like look at bands like radiohead or or obviously fish like they play especially radiohead this last tour did such a good job of really digging into our past and playing yeah. stuff that they had played a long time and you know fish is constantly playing songs that are old and they haven't played in years or you know reinventing songs like there's no shame in going back and playing you know, and 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 I think they realize that too because the the tour opener in Tulsa last night, you know, they played Acrobat for the first time ever. They played Wild Horses for the first time in in over a decade. You know, so you know they brought back a lot of things that on paper look like fan service, but ironically fit really well in the context of the shows. You know, Acrobat fit incredibly well with the McFisto stuff. Um, Wild horses fit really well with it. Ironically, fit really well with the political, like, women of the world narrative they were going for. Um, you know, it's subtle. Like, they didn't even like reference that during the song. Like, like ultraviolet was so on the Joshua Tree tour was so over the top with the whole like her story thing, which is cool in some ways. But musically, I think that version lacked compared to say the 360 version um, with Bono swinging from the oh, hanging God, microphone yeah. and stuff, mm. which is pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, but you know, I and staring at the sun, staring at the sun also had like a political undertone to it. Like they kind of updated that to the times because it's about political indifference, which it was written for at the time. And it's like, see, these are good things. That that yeah. means maybe maybe they'll bring please into the set list, or maybe they'll bring last night. Okay, maybe last night on Earth isn't the most relevant song, I guess. But you know, it could work. You know, you know, well, like they're it might work if. Uh... The quote unquote president's summit with North Korea doesn't go so well. Yeah, you know, you, they could do last night on Earth, you know? I mean, right. it, or, or, you know, and, it's the last night on Earth. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think please, please is more relevant than it's ever been, for example. Um, and if, they, if I wasn't really impressed and really proud of them for sticking with the No Joshua Tree thing, which they should totally keep doing because that's a great old school bold YouTube move. Yeah. Um, you know, Exit would be a phenomenal song to bring back into the set. Um, it would totally seal the show and you know really fit with the theme of of what the show is going for. But but I'd rather them not do any Joshua Tree songs. You know, keep that <laughs> keep that promise alive and see uh, how that goes. But 
So I think at this stage we have uh, absolutely punished our listeners with more U2 facts than anybody could stand to know. And uh, I really want to thank you, Ryan, for coming on. Your uh, knowledge of U2 and your fandom and your love of music in general I find really inspiring. And hopefully this won't be the last time that we have you on Beyond the Pond. I would love to come back, especially uh, we didn't talk about fish at all, and I'd love to talk about fish at some point um, amongst other yeah. ones. So that that would be a great thing to do at some point. Um, I would love to come back for sure. I share, yeah, consider. I, sh- I share all those thoughts. B- before we say our, our goodbyes, we need to we need to listen to Red Flag Day though. We do need to listen oh. to Red Flag Day, yeah, and then we'll come back. <laughs> first. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much for indulging us and letting us uh, dive deep into the YouTube discography. We hope that you guys learned something. We hope you guys walked away with a bigger appreciation for U2. We hope you guys heard a little bit from the band that you may not have been aware of before. And uh, we hope you guys enjoyed the discussion. We've really enjoyed this. Um, just quickly recapping the songs that we featured here. So off of uh, Pop, we featured the song Mofo. Uh, off of All That You Can't Leave Behind from the year 2000, we featured Kite. From 2004's How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb, we had Love and Peace or Else. In No Line on the Horizon, we featured Fez slash Being Born. And then Songs of Innocence, This Is Where You Can Reach Me Now, our unanimous best song off the record. And finally, off of U2's most recent album in late December 2007 or late 2017, uh, we have Red Flag Day. 
as always, we are very much on social media. You can find us on Twitter at, at underscore beyond the pond, one word. We still have our medium page. It's on medium.com slash beyond the pond. On Spotify, we have our Beyond the Pond podcast songs playlist. Haven't decided yet whether we're going to incorporate the U2 songs into that playlist or just make a separate U2 deep dive playlist. We'll let you know what happens when we do. Generally speaking, our publishing structure is every other Tuesday. Yeah, you'll hear these episodes. uh, Obviously, you're used to these back-to-back. We've got one more coming this month, uh, and then we'll be back to an every-other-week structure. But uh, before we go, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us on this journey. I think we've been talking about this since Songs of Experience was released, and I'm so glad we got to sit down, talk with you, and just I've always wanted the opportunity to – do a deep dive into you two. This is a, this is a pretty big thrill here. Yeah. It lived, it lived up tonight for me. I know for sure. I mean, this was the most fun I think I've ever had discussing you two's music, which is something I've done for a very long time. And people don't, you know, people don't have as much to say. So it's, I'm very glad I got to do it with two people who did. So thank both of you. Um, lots of awesome, very illuminating thoughts and things that I learned about songs that I've heard hundreds of times. Yeah. That I now know. So, so on that note we'll just say um come back in two weeks for the next episode of beyond the pond where i can guarantee you there will not be any youtube played in that episode <laughs> yes. we might I'll actually we might yeah there won't be any ryan we might actually play some fish i don't know remains to be seen but let's let our, uh, our guest is going to just introduce the last song that's going to take us out yeah, I think I think after, ironically, the last two records we had a unanimous favorite, and I think this song is, like I said, the song that most excites me about you two in the future, and hopefully this is an omen. I, like I said, it's now May fourth on the East Coast. You two are going to play in St. Louis in about eighteen hours. Let's hope that this song sinks its way into the setlist and becomes a live staple. This is the little things that give you away.
Osiris.